Blog Talk Radio. Pray. 
Currently, I'm with African Awareness and, of course, Brother Africa. You know my thing is all about institution building. But prior to in discussion with institution building, I think there are certain um, things that have to be discussed in terms of its, its relevance. Uh, one of the things, I think, in the, in the context of a temporary American society, this notion of fascism is often, is often discussed within the context of, you know, our power dynamics. But the bottom line is that, you know, uh, when you, on first deconstruction, Fascism is, is more than a simple a, a function of pursuing power. It also has a lot to do in terms of, you know, a desire to inflict pain on others. And so I thought I'd write a little bit about in terms of that that propensity in terms of fascism, desire to inflict pain on human beings. I think this is key in terms of understanding the nature of our struggle in American society or the Western Western world in general. Uh, now, any of you, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, the undeniable truth is fascism's underlying motivation in conjunction with power is to inflict pain on those perceived as outsiders. Embrace of fascism is not solely the domain of white racists, but includes some gay people and some black conservatives. Given the historical repression of oppressed nationalities, specifically gay and African people, one has to be hard-pressed to understand the receptiveness of fascism among those oppressed groups who have suffered exclusion, demonization, and murder. Social scientists says participation in fascistic groups whose interest does not align with the interests of the oppressed groups is a function of self-hatred and an unconscious desire to be punished. Other scientists take the view identifying with the patriarch, the patriarchal ethics or ethos of Western society tends to validate all things centered around men. In other words, identifying with the male power structure provides a sense of empowerment while simultaneously belonging to a group. Nowhere is this analysis more relevant than Alexander, Alexander, real name Ali Akbar. Alexander's right-wing embrace is exercising opportunism, but his embrace of far-right is, is no mere attempt to amass him power for himself. Beneath the shameless opportunism is a more innate drive justifying his right-wing embrace. It has long been known his proclivity for same-sex relations. Recently, it was revealed by a previous 15-year-old, Aidan Duncan, his relationship with the current right-wing activist at the age of 15 years of age. Alexander was able to conceal his real sexuality from the world by, pointing, by promoting the perception his support for traditional way of life. Interestingly enough, the irony of proclaiming conservative values while engaging in alternative lifestyles, all the while doling out hatred and re repression, seems well-suited for far-right Republicans. Conservative leaders like Alejandro Velasquez, billionaire Peter Thiel, all embrace archetypes of real men, but conceal behaviors unbecoming a real men, according to right-wing narrative. Now, the heart of far-right narrative is, is real men dominate. Domination entails aspects of institutional power that is historical and unforgiving. Since domination must manifest victims, those characterized as victims are easily quantified and identified as such. Government as such is uniquely qualified to empower and disempower, but the process requires individuals uniquely suited to reinforce infliction of pain on those deserving of pain. When the FBI surveillance of GOP officials or government was revealed, it was revealed on tape the level of antipathy or hatred of Africans and the desire to see the reemergence of fascism to deal with the nation's black problem. 
present at the meeting were two district com- commissioners, one sheriff, one state investigator of Oklahoma, and one jail administrator. These individuals embraced the desire to see Africans beaten and hanged without legal consequences. They even talked about hiring hitmen to kill journalists, presumably progressive journalists. Of course, the embrace of this kind of destruction utilizing politics is preceded by economic system at its core, indifferent to human suffering, and will like nothing will like excuse me, and will like nothing better than a final solution resolution to so many unwanted poor people. Currently, the U.S. is facing a credit crunch as a result of failing banks' inability to lend, which will magnify hardships on working people as jobs opportunities further decline. Over one trillion in the deposits removed from banks to date, and that number is increasing. Rather than address the structural problems of the too few holders of wealth using their wealth to determine the fate of banks, capitalism has devised an alternative plan that will ensure the continuation of the bank's decline but will also ensure the wealthy continue to benefit regardless. This misdirection strategy employed by U.S. leaders will not address government debt, but will instead eliminate the, the public access to information. Called the Restrict Act, authored by Senator Mark Warner, a representative of Virginia, the bill will criminalize access to certain information by characterizing certain states as foreign enemies. In effect, all online services, software updates, or information emanating from certain countries will be declared criminal, and the U.S. citizens will be subject to a $200,000 fine or 20 years in prison if they use any of these services. Talking about the spread of fascism is one thing, but the, degree, but the degree of punishment really underscores the level of contempt for democracy. It is this level of contempt for democracy and human rights that makes the destructiveness of fascism inevitable. When institutions embrace this destructiveness, it is inconceivable such volatility will not manifest in a body, politic, body politics. Republican animosity to democracy is well known, but the brazen embrace of fascism, specifically to bring harm to a large number of people, is truly a, a potential perspective or a spectacle. Republicans attempt to defy New York City District Attorney Office to coerce District Attorney Alvin Bragg to drop charges against Trump is unprecedented. Willing to engage in obstruction of instruction of district attorney official duties, obstruction of due process fails in comparison to Republicans' motivation. By framing Trump as innocent, his authoritarian leanings gets legitimized to advance fascism among the far right. In propping up the name Trump, Republicans ensure the symbolism necessary to ensure fascism viability and vitality is sustained, where Trump is seen as a folk hero. This is not an accident. Another example of Republicans creating the conditions to facilitate fascism is the actions of a Texas governor. Unlike the previous strategy to, to ensure the spread of fascism, the governor's latest move to pardon the killer of Garrett Foster, a Black Lives Matter supporter, implicitly endorses what life and whose life is important. The connotation, the connotation by the governor's words are clear. Any white person that aligns with black protests is an enemy. Implicit in the government's supposition, when Daniel, when Daniel Perry used his vehicle to kill Mr. Foster at the Black Lives Rally, Black Lives Matter rally, he did he did rights, rights a service and should not be imprisoned for, for, for performing essentially in his patriotic duty. 
when was the last time a governor of a state interfered in the functioning of state institutions he's elected to uphold? The fact a sworn jury assembled by the state found Curry guilty should have been sufficient to assure the governor that the judicial system works. The fact he felt compelled to interject himself in a proceeding that concluded suggests applying the law fairly is not his concern. If fairness for the governor for the governor is not a consideration, just how much embrace authoritarianism inhabits his soul? Can fascism in his mind be indistinguishable from white justice and the mass killing of America's enemies? The answer is probably not. And Brother Africa, I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony, representing the All African People, a member of the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party GSD. We'd like to welcome him as well to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objectivist Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, we bring in Brother Moses, a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity of the Cuban Revolution. Welcome, Brother Moses, to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I bear witness that women hold up half the sky. Therefore, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And the struggle is to continue to be to unite the many to defeat the few. And the word for today is God is the spirit. And if your God is not bigger than your Bible, then your Bible is your God. Thank you. Have a good day. Good show. Have a thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, we bring in Sister Eleanor. She's also a member of the DC Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. We welcome her as well to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Good evening, uh, Brother Africa, and to the, my fellow panelists, to our listening audience in the United States and abroad. Um, uh, this weekend is Earth Day. My name is Eleanor Johnson. I am uh, environmentalist, artist, human rights advocate, and a former educator. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the on the show. And the struggle for Ty Nicholas still goes four months after his murder in Memphis. Thank you. 
Thank you, Sister Eleanor, and to our listening audience. We'd like to welcome those who have just joined us. And theme tonight is Africa to be free. We'll be discussing that later in the program. But at this particular time, we can take a rubbish during culture break. And when we come back, we do welcome you to join us as we discuss what's going on in your world and the community. That's right. We'd like to know what's going on in your world and the community. And you can do that by dialing 323-679-0841 when we return. This is Africa on Moves, your host, Brother Africa. We'll be right back. I love you for staying strong. You got it going. 
glad to welcome you back to Africa on the Move on the 23rd day of April, 2023. We'll be entertaining the theme tonight, Africa, to be free. Before we do that, like always, we'd like to start our party off with the first segment of what's going on in your world and the community. Before we bring in our political panelists and analysts, there's a couple of announcements I'd like to share with our listening audience, friends, supporters, and all those who'd like to join this crew. And that is on the on this particular date, in 1951, there was a student walkout, an African student walkout in Strike in Farmville, Virginia. It opened up a new area of struggle in the battle against U.S. apartheid. That was in 1951 in Farmville, Virginia. The students became conscious of their responsibility to fight against injustice. Also, we'd like to remind everyone who would like to support the radio station, the work of um, Africa on Move, you can feel free to send any gifts or donations in the form of to Cash App, which is a dollar sign, capital A, small E, small E, small C, small R, small O, small B. You can cash up us or you can zail us by sending to African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. All contributions were greatly appreciated. And we ask the listening audience to help us out spread this program by sharing this program with your network. If you'd like to have a link to this program and others, please email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. And we'll be more than honored to send you this email. Remember, without information, can I thank and without organization, can I thank clearly one of the purpose and what we hope to feel at this point in time where our people historical development is to give them the necessary information so we can bring about desirable change that we are seeking as it will lead us toward the role of our true liberation and unification. So on that note, we'd like to thank you as always. And at this point in time, we can open up our lines to you and our political panel analysts as we discuss what's going on in your world and in the community. We'll bring Brother Haki back in. And Brother Haki, before you discuss what's going on in your world and your community, I just want to be clear. And maybe you could articulate a little bit again on your earlier presentation. You made made a notion of this question of fascism, but this whole question of how they may want to create new rules or policies that if you listen to certain information that may come from other countries or countries that they don't approve, you'll be held accountable as if you have committed a crime. Can you elaborate just a little bit more on that point again, Brother Hackey, for our listening audience? Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the implicit danger, Brother Africa, if the if this powers that be tell these American citizens you have no right to information, then that fundamentally suggests, you know, that not only is fascism a viable a, a, a viable tool in terms of silencing the population, but fascism is actually in existence. And so we have to understand that when we talk about fascism, when we talk about the elimination of, of, of people's rights, human rights, uh, when we talk of, or even people's civil rights, so when we talk about the demolition or, 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 or the elimination of those rights, that clearly means that the people in the society are in a very precarious state. 
And so one of the things with all these problems going on in society, in particular when we start talking about issues pertaining to the banks and so forth and so on, a lot of these problems are self-inflicted. But the problem is, is this. The problems are self-inflicted because one of the things that, that is happening is that in order for the ruling class to, to preserve its longevity, in order for them to stay in power, it has to sacrifice certain, certain institutions in terms of preserving its power. And one of the things is that as banks become more and more powerful, they actually become an a instrument, uh, a, become an instrument of, um, of, of great concern for those positions of power. So you want banks in terms of facilitating trade. You want banks in terms of, <clears throat> you know, uh, rewarding the wealthy for their investments. So you want banks, but you don't want banks uh, to become so powerful to the extent that they literally, you know, uh, uh, become untouchable. The fear is that if banks become untouchable at some point, it's going to impact the power, the, the, the ability of the powerful to affect uh, changes in society. And so, therefore, you want to ameliorate the rise of banks. And so what was happening is that uh, a lot of these, these problems in terms of the bank are self-inflicted. And so a lot of these investments that take place, are, and they know they are particular. If you talk, for instance, let's say you talk about derivatives. You know if you allow banks to arbitrarily invest in, in, in very shaky investments, then you know the reality is that somehow they're going to, they're, they're going to lose money. You know that. But you allow them to do it anyway because in, our, in reality, you want them to make those bets because you're hoping that they do lose money. Indeed, they do lose money. And so, the, so, so in this context, what happens is that, you know, the, you, you have a situation where uh, increasingly, you know, banks are being eliminated. But what happens is that as those banks have been eliminated, the few banks with a tremendous amount of clout, those are the most power, are actually gaining in terms of power, in terms of their ability, in terms of, uh, uh, de de determining the, 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 the position or, or, or the strength or the direction of the country. But having a few banks in positions of power is not a, is not a threat to power to be because they can more adequately control very few banks in terms of, you know, which direction the country is going to take. So it's in a capitalist, capitalist interest to have fewer and fewer banks in terms of control because it makes control by the capitalists that much more easier. So we understand this is a very strategic game that they play, and so part of it is that make sure you deny people access to information. So when these kind of things happen, people don't have a clue what's going on. They simply merely accept this inevitability and not question, and I ask the people, you know, the, the logical consequences, you know, of, of these kind of things happening in society, and not having access to information only ensures that these things are going to happen and, hop, and happen relatively quickly. So clearly, uh, it's, it's, it's part and parcel of this, this move, this move of, of toward you know fascism, uh, in terms of denying people information. It's important that we understand that reality in terms of just how precarious our situation is in society, because increasingly more and more, you know, they're telling us not only how to think, they tell us what to think. And now they're saying that not only we can tell you what to think or how to think, we can tell you you don't deserve information. Period. So that's fundamentally uh, the essence of fascism, and this is why we have to be concerned with what's going on in this society. Now, the statement you know, for tonight, Brother Africa. Mm -hmm. we, we ought to remind our audience that they must understand that without information, they cannot think. So this is another example of trying to limit the capacity for you to think. So anyway, Brother Africa, um, Brother Hackey, uh, we thank you, and you can go ahead with your segment on what's going on in your world and the community. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah, brother Africa. You know, one of the things you know um, is, is 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 really paradoxical. But the notion in terms of when you talk about U.S. foreign policy, I mean, you look at the overall function of the economy, there's something fundamentally askew, something fundamentally wrong in terms of U.S. foreign policy and its impact on the national economy. You would think that in terms of U.S. foreign policy, it would be geared toward the enhancement or to improve the functioning of the economy. But in reality, the exact opposite is happening. So it's a very, very interesting paradox. So I think people have to begin to understand. So I thought I'd write a little bit about in terms of some of the dynamics behind the scene in which the media is not going to talk about, which I think is important that people begin to recognize and to, to research and to better understand in terms of what's going on in society. But then, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, candidly stated, protecting national security may come at economic cost. When Yellen speaks of national security, she surreptitiously or deceptively alludes to U.S. geopolitical interests. Geopolitical interest refers to a proactive military posture that views all aspects of countries' relationships be subverted to the interests of the U.S. For example, international finance, trade agreements, and war agreements all fall, fall under the rubric of U.S. security interest in that the U.S. seeks control of any and all multilateral institutions that essentially guide the world's political direction. Those U.S.-led international agreements give rise to military structures whose task is to employ force when diplomatic and or monetary policy fails to reach uh, political objectives U.S. deems vital. This structure, known as the full-spectrum dominance, has been updated, and in 2020, updates included a more expansive definition of a full-spectrum dominance role. This document entails a more pervasive definition of U.S. economy, excuse me, of U.S. enemies, and its uncompromising use of military force, even if such military campaigns destroys or gravely weakens the U.S. economy. Under the Department of Defense joint vision, quote, the ability to confront, engage, and defeat adversaries or enemies in the 21st century alone or in tandem with military partners or allies, end quote, is highlighted. One of the biggest obstacles to U.S. strategic planning is the resistance of some G7 nations to be pawns for the U.S. interests. Turkey Interior Minister Salman Solu alluded to the decline of respect for Europe as in a U.S. vessel, while President Macron of France asserted Europe's interests should not take a backseat to U.S. arguing France would not commit to war in the event U.S. uses Taiwan to broker a war with China. Macron echoes the sentiments of European leaders who have sacrificed their good names, economies, and social safety nets to accommodate U.S. foreign policy, leading to discord, economic discord throughout the world and global warming that serves no one's interests. Now, among the anniversaries Yellen entails, none are more highlighted than China. Ironically, labeling China as diabolical raises the question, what has China done to U.S. politically to justify such characterization? The reality is China has done absolutely nothing to the United States politically. U.S. anger toward China stems from fair U.S. international policy that sought to bribe Chinese leadership in hopes that material gain would corrupt China's Central Committee to align China with the West. The strategy was simple. During the Nixon reign as president, corporations pressured Nixon to open relationship with China. Their benefits were believed to be two-pronged. One, with close to two billion people, market access would ensure huge profits for Western capitalists. And two, with material success, the assumption was the Central Committee of China would, would enjoy immense benefits of corruption as their economy skyrocketed. 
assumptions being access to corruption would inevitably encourage the Central Committee to join Western countries, and together, both countries could exploit resources of the global south. Uh, <clears throat> this is no mere abstraction. For context, currently, Ukraine President Zelensky, along with the military advisors, sold over 400 million U.S. dollars allocated to purchase fuel for military equipment. This death, of, this, this death of these funds were known by U.S. military officials but allowed to persist because it ensures Ukraine will align with Western interests supporting near-term structures that use military means to plunder the global south. Since the U.S. has debt-trapped Ukraine by coercing Ukraine to give up its natural resources in exchange for material, for, for material aid, Simply, upon conclusion of this war, the U.S. capitalist class will benefit greatly in making immense profits while poor Ukrainians suffer. In the case of China, China refused to play ball. Rather than participate and partake in massive corruption, China leadership clamped down on corruption, asked Jack Ma. Rather than, use China's, rather than use China's newfound wealth to increase the wealth of the rich, China's Central Committee control of banks ensure investments in the population were optimized, resulting in 800 million people being lifted out of poverty. China's commitment to its people meant a decrease in profits for the capitalists in the West. China's non-productive use of investments, while still largely profitable for Western capitalists, threatened to create a precedent where investments would be used to alleviate poverty, undermining power of the capitalists over the lives of the poor people throughout the world. In hindsight, the capitalist premonition did come to fruition. Understanding China's long-term economic interests were best protected by greatly reducing poverty, not just domestically, but internationally, China undertook the Belt Road Initiative providing $4 trillion in investments in the global south. Among those investments, between $200 and $300 billion over one, over one decade has been invested in sub-Saharan Africa. Needless to say, these sub-Saharan African investments incurred the rancor of Western states, particularly the U.S., which sees Africans, Africa within the Western sphere of influence. The assumption being Africa is a colony unequal to the West. Obviously, China's transgression of liberating the slaves had to be addressed. The first response to China's investments in Africa was to demonize China by insisting China was manipulating its currency by pegging it to the dollar to gain trade advantage. China decoupled its currency to allow interest rates to be determined by market forces. Next, the U.S. employed sanctions on China by blocking certain technologies, blocking foreign investments to China, and prohibiting China from acquiring land in the U.S. China responded by reducing level of U.S. debt held. Once the largest holder of U.S. debt, China currently holds about $1 trillion in U.S. debt. Even though China holdings represent less than 1.7% of U.S. GDP, reduction in debt holdings sends a powerful message to the U.S. bond market is unstable which tends to scare off potential investors. Even though the U.S. bond market represents over $7 trillion, bank failures in solvent corporations and declining interest in the dollar as reserve currency underscores the instability of U.S. finances and why China's selling of U.S. debt is so problematic. Now, when U.S. representatives make claims about China's human rights abuses, they do, so, they do a disservice to objectivity. U.S. human rights abuses are well documented from homelessness to unaffordability to higher education, from police brutality to mass incarceration of the poor, disproportionately African and Latin, the human rights abuses abound. In no small matter, much of the human rights abuses stems from U.S. foreign policy which seeks to perpetuate the horrors of colonialism. Little wonder China is seen as an enemy. 
The idea of a paradigm shift or the funding of a new age is fundamentally at odds with U.S. capitalism or neoliberalism that seeks to advance that seeks to advance humanity. It is indeed a shame the U.S. ruling class does not understand change is inevitable, and no amount of suppression, repression, and oppression can prevent change or China's rise, for that matter. Humanity will be free despite the actions of the West and the U.S. specifically. And Brother Africa, I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, a few things. Uh, One is that uh, Africa is pushing back against uh, European capitalist influence, uh, particularly as far as this culture is concerned. And uh, it's interesting uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, that Africans are pushing back against pressure from the uh, capitalist countries to uh, to embrace LGBTQ uh, uh, rights. And uh, this is in context of uh, legislation that was passed in Uganda recently uh denying uh you know basically outlawing homosexuality and uh and uh it got a severe criticism uh from the US and uh western europe for this uh for this legislation and uh there's some uh there's some forces in africa that are pushing back against that saying that lgbtq is uh you know it's not uh you know it's not a, a a major problem inside of africa and that uh and that they resent the imposition of uh european cultural values upon africans and uh so there is pushback and uh that's uh and uh the positive aspect is that uh that Afri- uh, africans are starting to realize at home at least that uh that their that their cultural values are under attack and that the reason why uh, you know lgbtq is uh being in, 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 imposed on africa is to uh is uh, a subtle way of uh de- uh depopulating africa because uh you know ho- uh, uh, homosexuals uh human beings engaged in homosexual relationships aren't capable of reproduction so it's not so much about a lgbtq rights that the uh that the imperialist country are concerned with, they're looking for uh, another way of undermining uh, Africa's, uh, you know, uh, uh, population. And therefore, uh, depleting uh, uh, Africa's resources further. Thank you, um, Brother Anthony. 
And next we'll go to Brother Moses. What's going on in your world and community, Brother Moses? Thank you, thank, thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you. Uh, it's been um, interesting. I'm going to say, um, in terms of fascism and the trying to deny us information, that is all true. That's why we support the Julian Assages. We support the um, Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning. Uh, we support Eric Snowden and, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a war. Um, um, I think that right wing winger, I can't remember his name, but he had info, info wars. And that's the truth. It's info wars. Without information, you can't think. Without organization, you can't think clearly, they say. So, you know, they, they uh, definitely want to deny us information, uh, especially information that's going to help us get liberated. So, Meanwhile, um, um, a 30-year-old young black man was found in southeast D.C., Wheeler Road and and Southern Avenue area, uh, found unconscious uh, and pronounced dead, um, and... um, it just, he was stripped of all his belongings, all his ID, everything, and the way he was identified was through fingerprints. I just think, you know, we need to, we need to be more conscious uh, um, of, of our surroundings and, um, and uh, watch our back. Uh, this is, Southeast is the hood, as they say, and, um, uh, uh, I just think you know we gotta we gotta get more conscious people uh, involved in 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 uh, the neighborhood. I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Not the southeast, maybe the hood. So there's the whole damn yes, Brother Moses. The whole country is the hood. If you look at the how they are. Interacting with one another as human beings. All right, let's go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, um, we celebrated Earth Day uh, this weekend. Uh, and to pick up on what uh, Brother Robert was saying and the other members of the audience, violence continues to be rampant and what's uh, amazing is that violence against the uh, the police, for example, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, the, the mayor does not have control over the uh, police department. Instead, it's the governor of the state. And um, as we know, Ty Nichols was shot 46 times running away from the police, and no one has been indicted in this crime. 
and we continue to see these senseless crimes, uh, traffic crimes, no serving of warrants, no violent crimes, kidnapping, murder. The only murders are the murders of African-American people, predominantly African born and and raised in the United States, being shot dead. But that also contributes to the trend we see uh, uh, in Tennessee with the the six-person shot at the uh, parochial school and the action taken against two elected officials. So the main thing um, right now is uh, violence, the uh, egregious violence in the United States, uh, gun violence, and a lack of control of the police for a city the size of Memphis, Tennessee, uh, to not have uh, control over the police department for that power to be held by the governor is uh, uh, very disruptive and undermines uh, the safety uh, of the citizens of Memphis. So I uh, just wanted to bring that to the attention of our audience just what's happening, and the fact that, uh, as Brother Anthony said, there's a real fight back against Africans by Africans uh, wanting to get the United States, the EU, and NATO out of Africa. Uh, That is for certain. We see what happened to Libya and how uh, things continue to be uh, out of control in Libya and the individual factions that are fighting over control of Libya. And uh, that continues to be a problem. In terms of an organization called One Billion Rising, they are for Earth Day focusing on us taking control of Mother Earth, of her body, protecting it from uh, expansion of mining and logging and uh, these horrific things going on, as well as taking control of women's bodies and women being in control of their bodies their education, and their health. So uh, that's what's going on. And uh, Cuba is uh, under cyber attack. You continue to see misinformation. The U.S. imperialists is full of falsehoods and lies that are far from the truth and, and just aren't ethical. Uh, it is true that a digital platform and social networks have added new channels of communication uh, for everyone in the world, but uh, the level of truth 
uh, is really doable. Um, and uh, we, so we see that we really have to educate ourselves and each other to be able to stay clear of uh, these kind of mistruths and uh, falsehoods that we see, like those against Cuba. For example, uh, the uh, Peter Pan operation from December 26, 1960 to October 23, 1962. It was said to be one of the cruelest subversion actions developed uh, by anyone. It's said to be developed by the Central Intelligence Agency, the State Department, and religious institutions in the United States with the support of counter-revolutionary organizations inside Cuba, where the main victims would be defenseless children and parents deceived or confused by by uh, uh, by this propaganda. And as Brother Anthony said, he was talking about uh, the rights of people. In Uganda, it was said that... Uh, much of this propaganda against the uh, gay community is from right-wing U.S. uh, uh, religious groups that have been spreading propaganda throughout East Africa for decades. And they're pushing this uh, agenda uh, that that homosexuality is a crime that you can serve life in prison and and uh, persons housing uh, 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 people in the community will possibly lose their homes and other things and folks are really not about this. There is a strong movement in the United States that is against women's rights, they're against abortion, they're against the rights of the, uh, I never say the acronym correctly, but of the gay community. They're against voters' rights. Uh, They are against sound environmental action, and they're promoting it globally. And uh, that's what we are seeing in Uganda, and the people need to be independent and uh, free from the influence of the uh, religious right, which is a tool of the imperialist empire. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You know, panelists, I would like to get some feedback from y'all in terms of how the U.S. and the West is um, weaponizing this gay, lesbian community and trying to impose it on African countries but not doing it to no other countries. What really is this all about? I read an article uh, earlier this week 
how that same movie also becoming an issue and problem um, on the Palestinians, where they're trying to force the Palestinians to make that issue become more important mm-hmm. than the issue of being liberated as a people. So what is what is your take on, on, on this phenomenon? Salvage Brother Haki. <coughs> well, you know, as I said before, Brother Africa, I think um, it's a political strategy. I think when you start talk about um, you know homosexuality, uh, certainly it, it becomes a a a a um, a, um, a, a, um, a a issue that tends to divide. And I think to the extent that is is uh, it can impose division, I think the U.S. recognizes its importance in terms of imposing that. So if you create a situation in which, in terms of say gayness become legitimate legitimized. Uh, then certainly you create the avenue in which people who are gay advocate, you know, for for those those rights, and so it poses a certain amount of division in society. And this is precisely what the country, you know, want, what the U.S. wants to to do. It's a um, it's a wedge issue. It's one of those things that the U.S. want to uh, want to use in Africa in terms of um, you know in terms of division. I think uh, Brother Africa is absolutely correct. I think to some extent in terms of promoting lifestyle in terms of as as a strategy. To limit the population growth in Africa, uh, certainly that that has to be taken into consideration. But I think, but but I think a larger aspect, though, I think really is just it's just um, a, a wedge issue. And what is interesting, Brother Africa, is that when you, when you, in in the, in the context of you know you know all the African countries I ever visit, uh, the people don't have a problem in terms of people being gay. They accept they accept people being gay. They don't have a problem with that. There's no there's no demonization of gay people in in, in Africa. There's no assault on gay people in Africa. They recognize people are gay. They recognize that people are born that way, and they don't have a problem with that. So I don't think it's – so I think what's happening is that the U.S. and the West, and the U.S. in particular, is making it an issue. And what's going to happen, they can call attention to the gay community in Africa, uh, and I suspect that the amount of uh, abuse or certainly the amount of attacks, physical attacks against gay people in, in, in Africa is going to actually increase. I think part and parcel because when you think about in terms of the the, the, the the economic situation that's confronting Africa, I think the the propensity to displace anger uh, is, is part goes hand in hand in terms of the economic uh, misery that exists you know on the continent. So I think that in that context is also good for the U.S. in terms of facilitating division because if you got people attacking gay people in the kind of division which distracts the government from what it needs to be doing. In terms of you know uh, dealing with issues of economy, dealing with questions in terms of social safety net for the people, or even situation to pertain to jobs on the continent. Uh, so clearly, brother Africa, I think it's I think it's a wedge issue. I think that's that's what motivates them because the bottom line is that you know as I said before, Africans don't have a, Africans don't have a problem in terms of homosexuality. Uh, they understand that people there are people who are gay and they don't. It's no big thing. I never went to any African country, and I've been to most African countries. You know, over the last 25 years, and I have yet to see any African get upset about someone being gay. I have in no country I have yet to see anybody get upset about someone being gay. As uh, a matter of fact, they don't talk about it. They recognize it exists. They don't legitimize it. They recognize it exists, and and, and that's just the way it is. So I think by the U.S. And, and, and by the U.S. pushing this issue of gayness, I think they want to. Want, I think it's. Uh, I think it serves as a bit of a distraction in terms of. Uh, in, in inviting attacks on gay people as a, as a means to divide the African uh, the African uh, African countries in terms of you know uh, preventing them from focus on that which they need to focus on. So my view is it's a wage issue. Brother Anthony, 
they pushing some some stuff that they haven't even proven in their own country in the West. Your thought on this phenomenon, Brother Anthony? Yes, uh, I agree with uh, Brother Haki that it that it that it that it is a wedge issue, and also uh, you know by uh, by uh, by making it uh, you know an associate division in the short term. And we're, and we're, at a at a day in and a day in time when Africa needs to unify, and it shows the vision, and it's also a, a you know a subtle attempt to depopulate Africa, as I stated earlier, by making it seem like everybody, you know, seem fashionable. Everybody's doing it. And I think the reality is that in the African context, um, you know, uh, homosexuality has probably been around as long as uh, heterosexuality, but it is not something that uh, that, that 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 Africans traditionally make a big deal about. Just as the, just as uh, you know, the issue of skin tone has never been an issue in Africa. You know, there are, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and and the thing about it, though, it didn't become an issue until, uh, you know, in, until uh, European, the European ruling class tried to figure out ways of dividing African people. And uh, this was another attempt at division, at preventing Africans from unifying issues that are uh, that, that, that 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 are more pressing, such as um, you know all forms of exploitation, uh, gender oppression, and uh, environmental issues. Those are more important issues to fight over than uh, that than this argument of of one sexual orientation. And uh, that's something that Africans have dealt with for a long time. And uh, as uh, Haki correctly points out, and that it is at the, it never became the dominant issue that it did inside of Europe. And so I think it's a wedge issue, and I think it's a, a, a case of uh, the European bourgeoisie trying to impose their cultural values upon Africans. Thank you, Brother Andy. Brother Moses, your take. Okay, now we're talking about a definite country with some definite laws, aren't we? We're talking about this whole issue of this, this U.S. Uh, politicizing, this, the the the, the, the the LGBT movement and want to impose on Africa more so than anybody else. Whereas even in the U.S., they have not even accepted that yet. And nor do they even deal with countries that is more hostile towards that position, but yet they said not to them. But yet Africa seems to be the main country where they make it, want to make it become an issue. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, as an abstract issue, I don't believe in 
policing people's bedrooms. I mean, that's that's fascism, as far as I'm concerned. When you when you got when you start trying to police people's bedrooms, and so you know, as a as this, when the state becomes involved in that on that level, um, you're talking some kind of authoritarian, definitely fascist state. Uh, uh, in terms of that that level, that contradiction, and so um, I. Uh, that's that's um, on the LGBT movement. Uh, um, I support their right to be themselves, and uh, and uh, and any law laws, domestic policy is the same as foreign policy. As far as I'm concerned, if you if you if you um, if you oppose to them here, you oppose to them there. If you form here, you form there, and so it's. It's you know it's a matter of the heart, it's a matter of compassion, empathy, uh, and uh, experience. Ultimately, um, people have something have to have experience uh, with uh, the the gay communities in order to to see how they how they are human beings and that they breathe and 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 cry and do everything everybody else does. And so, um, um. I I don't have I like I said I'm not for policing bedrooms it's just not me and so I'm opposed to the state government passing law, laws about bedrooms and I leave it at that thank you Sister Alador your take uh, Yes Sister Alador uh, Are we talking about Uganda uh uh what, Not just Uganda, uh, we're talking about Africa in general. We're speaking to Africa in general, the West trying to impose those issues on them. I think um, um, I agree with uh, the fellow panelists. Uh, one, policing bedrooms is, is not on uh, my agenda. More importantly, as uh, Brother Haiki and Brother Anthony said, there are serious issues that um, need to be taken up. One is um, getting rid of the CF, uh, the French currency being used on the continent now. Another is development. The other is the impact, uh, the environmental impact that uh, is impacting uh, Africa, uh, who did very little to cause the drought and the things that are happening in Africa right now as a result of global warming. So I think uh, there are environmental issues uh, educational issues, issues concerning transportation, infrastructure, uh, education, health care. Uh, like right now, they are, there's a serious uh, decline in children's vaccinations, such as measles and other traditional vaccinations uh, uh, that need to be addressed. So somehow the people are being distracted from what really counts, such as protecting the health of the children, of African children. 
of um, making sure they receive a quality education and that the uh, state provides an education rather than the parents having to struggle or parents struggling to pay school fees. So there are real issues that uh, uh, Africans need to face, and it should not be a propaganda issue being uh, pushed by right-wing imperialist-funded religious capitalists on the continent. Right now, uh, the children's health, the mortality of mothers and children are so important. Um, uh, the infant mortality rate is, in, in for example, in Washington, D.C., is amongst the highest in the West. We had one Georgia politician say that if you took the black health equation out of uh, the state statistics, uh, the state would be a much healthier place. And as for the continent itself, as I said, there's the same decline there. Children aren't receiving their vaccinations. People are going hungry. There are major droughts across the Sahara. I hope I'm pronouncing it uh, correctly. There is an election that still is struggling to be resolved in Nigeria. Libya, once a great country, a wealthy country, helping to liberate and unite unite Africa as a pan-Africanist, and Africanist state is in complete chaos because of the uh, NATO and the U.S. and the EU and Great Britain. So these are just distractions to keep the people from focusing on what is important in Africa. And I'm not sure whether it's to distract Africans that uh, the diaspora uh, from uh, focusing on issues that affect uh, Africans at home or what. But it's clearly not the main issue. Right now, the main issues are the environment, education, health, clean water, housing, education, and those issues, and reforestation, planting trees, and these types of things, and coming up with new ways of uh, producing food and agriculture, and also producing crops at home that are currently being imported, such as tomatoes and things like that being imported in West Africa when they could be grown there. So I think this is a distraction. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. At this point in time, what we're going to do is we're going to take a station break. When we come back, we're going to address our theme tonight, 
Africa to be free. We'd like to just share with our listening audience that if you ever get a chance, please check out on uh, YouTube a piece that was um, speech given by Professor Piero Lumumu titled Why Africa is Attracted to China. We will discuss that piece under the context of Africa to be free when we come back. And you can join us by dialing 323-679-0841. This is Africa on the Move. And we are at war. Good evening. I told you this so. is Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady.
grandfather killed my great-great-grandfather. And your white-great-grandfather sold my great-grandfather. And your white-grandfather raped my grandmother. And your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? Good evening, America. This is your president. Please listen carefully to the announcement I'm about to make. After careful consideration and research, Vice President Duke, Congress, and myself have concluded that black people have not advanced technologically. Their educational testing scores are on a rapid decline. The vast majority of them are on welfare and producing babies at a faster rate than they can support them. And we will not carry them anymore. We are left with no other choice but to put slavery back into effect. All blacks will report to the designated camps in their area to receive further orders. The only blacks excused will be those serving in the United States military and the police. Any blacks who do not cooperate will be terminated immediately. I repeat, slavery is back in effect. We are at war! That's what I told you. I know you heard what the president said, and if the nigga don't move, then he's dead. It's time for us to take the stand. Woman to woman and man to man. Blood pressure through your veins, you feel the fear. Who'd have thought that it could happen here? In the land of the free, home of the brave. The year's 95, you're a slave. Some go in shock when they first hear the news. Press play and then rewind and review. But the message is clear and it cuts just like the knife. You don't surrender, they take your life. And I remember the movies my mama used to show. 
about Africa, once seen by Europe as the antithesis of civilization, the heart of darkness in the words of a certain Joseph Conrad. Centuries later, Africa remains ignored. It makes news for its conflicts, poverty and exoticism. For the longest time, the world saw it as a lost cause. Then one country saw opportunity and thus began a new race for Africa, not very different from the scramble of the 19th century when colonial Britain and France wanted raw materials, slaves and geopolitical influence. Now in the 21st century, global powers are in more or less the same race. China, the United States, India, the European Union, Japan, Israel, Canada, all of these countries are in the race for Africa. And one country is emerging as the clear winner. Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus, I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay and this is Africa, a continent of 54 sovereign states, 17% of the world's population, 9.6% of the global oil output, 90% of the world's platinum supply, 90% of the world's cobalt supply, half of the world's gold supply, two-thirds of the world's manganese, 35% of the world's uranium, 75% of the world's coltan, and 54 votes in the United Nations General Assembly. This is what makes Africa so attractive and makes the continent a battleground for global powers. There are numerous fronts, investment and infrastructure, military power, diplomacy, soft power, trade, geopolitics. Every country has its own interest in Africa. In 2016, Israel began its scramble for the continent. Benjamin Netanyahu became the first Israeli prime minister to visit Africa in 50 years. What did he want? Votes. In favor of Israel and against Palestine in the United Nations resolutions. Africa and Israel share similar histories, he said. Israel went on to sponsor solar, water and agricultural technologies. In the same year, 2016, Senegal co-sponsored a UN resolution. It condemned the construction of illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. What did Israel do? It cancelled the Mashav drip irrigation project. And this is just one example. Here's another one. The European Union has pledged more than $54 billion in sustainable investment for Africa. What does the EU want? Access to the African market of 1.3 billion people. Brussels has negotiated free trade agreements with at least 40 African countries. But does this ensure a balanced two-way trade? It doesn't. And no country has a bigger interest in Africa than China. China is funding one in five infrastructure projects in Africa. It is building every third one. Africa has an infrastructure deficit and China has a signed checkbook. Starting 2005, China has invested at least $2 trillion in Africa. It built 6,200 kilometers of railways, including the continent's longest railway line connecting Ethiopia and Djibouti. Beijing has also built the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. What does China get in return? A lot. Geopolitical influence to start with. 
Beijing is selling its culture, its currency. In Guinea-Bissau, exit signs are written in Mandarin. China has established at least 50 Confucius Institutes across 33 countries. Several African countries use Chinese currency. China also gets a strategic overseas base. In 2017, China built its first overseas base at the Horn of Africa, Djibouti to be specific. Djibouti connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean via the Suez Canal. The base has the capacity to accommodate 10,000 troops. China also gets a market to dump its goods. China is Africa's largest trading partner. Chinese trade has increased 40-fold in the last two decades. At least 10,000 Chinese firms operate in Africa. This is according to a McKinsey study. Africa has resources and China has access. Did you know that a third of China's investments in Africa are in the mining sector? And finally, it gets to debt trap Africa. But here's the thing. China is not the only country investing in this continent. It's not even the biggest. The United States is Africa's largest investor. It accounts for $54 billion of FDI stock. There are 600 American companies operating in South Africa alone. And this even after the US president called Africa this. For the longest time, Africa was nothing but a war zone for Washington. It has over 7,000 troops deployed in the continent. They are spread across some 13 African countries including Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Libya, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, South Sudan, Somalia, and Tunisia. For the U.S., Africa was a continent for counter-terrorism operations. What happened then? Why is the U.S. suddenly interested in Africa? The answer is this. For the U.S., Africa is now a new front to take on China, and Washington is now fighting it out for power and influence. An article on the U.S. State Department website reads, and I quote, Africa is the continent of the future, thus we need to make the most of its potential. By 2050, its population will more than double to 2.2 billion people with over 60% under the age of 25. Where is Africa's interest in all of this? Also, what about India? What role does India play in this continent? New Delhi's ties with Africa date back to the time of Mahatma Gandhi. India was part of the Bandung project of 1955. New Delhi supported Africa's anti-colonial struggles. It supported the liberalization movements in Ghana, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. India also raised the issue of racism in South Africa. It will be unfair to say, though, that India's newfound interest in Africa has nothing to do with China. In 2018, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi toured key African states just ahead of Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit. In 2018, India decided to open 18 new embassies in Africa. India has defense partnerships with Zambia, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Botswana, Uganda, Mozambique and Namibia. New Delhi is currently training African military. Indian company Airtel is a dominant telecom firm in Africa. New Delhi is offering 50,000 scholarships to African students. Despite everything, India is far behind China in the race for Africa. China's Belt and Road Initiative has sealed its hold on Africa. If in the 1900s Africa was colonized with force, in 2020, it is being trapped by loans. China accounts for 14% of sub-Saharan debt. In Kenya, the volume of Chinese loans is six times that of France, which is the country's second largest creditor. And Sri Lanka can tell you what happens when Chinese loans are not repaid. China is looking to capture Africa. It has a strong diaspora. It is spending big money. It is selling its movies, culture and currency. China extracts raw materials. It manufactures products with them and sells them back to this continent. Does this remind you of something?
What did the British do in India? In the 19th century, the rivalry between Britain and France fueled Africa's colonization. In the 21st century, the trade war between the United States and China is hastening the same. Just like the 19th century, there are numerous countries in the scramble for Africa. And just like the 19th century, there is nothing in it for Africa. Gravitas Plus, co-presented by Score. Welcome back to Africa on the Moon. You just listened to a segment titled The Race for Africa. And there are also a discussion tonight around the theme, Africa to be free. We'd like to encourage our listening audience if you've ever heard it. We'd like to put this in, con- in conjunction with the segment titled Why Africa is Attracted to China. It's a presentation you can find on YouTube that was done by Professor Piero Lumumba raising this question, why Africa is attracted to China and the rest of the world. And we'd like to have that discussion tonight. We invite you to call in at 323-679-0841. If you have a comment or question, please hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. And theme tonight, Africa, to be free. So, panelists, as you listen to that documentary or the presentation by Pierre Lumumba on why Africa is attracted to China and to the rest of the world for that sake, and you just heard the piece on the race for Africa, I was just throwing a general question, and I'd like to have your response. And the question is, what would it take for Africa to be free? What would it take for Africa to be free, Brother Haki? Well, in, in a nutshell, Brother Africa, for Africa to be free, um, you know, it, it needs organization. I mean, there's no question about that. Uh, you know, there's a tremendous amount of competing interests in Africa. you got 54 states, you know, all advocating, you know, for different things. Without a, a, uh, a, 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 a definitive and consistent um, operating position, uh, the the problem is that uh, it makes it easier for Western nations to manipulate Africa uh, to the extent that uh, the manipulation uh, tends to play one end against the other, and so in that context, it serves as a agent of instability, in which you know uh, by providing um, uh, relationship with certain African countries, it negates the same relationship with other African countries, which creates the instability. So it seems to me, first and foremost, there has to be some collective discussion, some collective understanding in terms of moving forward, and that is the political organization. So we, we need that political organization because, you know, and, and one of the things is that, you know, uh, the African Union uh, of late, you know, um, you know um, is, has been uh, much more assertive in terms of its opposition in terms of uh, Western, Western neocolonialism, and that's a very, very good sign. But the biggest problem is that, you know, uh, the question of pan-Africanism has never been discussed, unless I discussed pan-Africanism, in the continent of Africa, the African Union specifically, was back in 2012. And so clearly it's long overdue in terms of that kind of discussion because one of the things I think is key, and I think Muammar Gaddafi was very clear on this point, that one of the things that you have to have in terms of you know economic policy, you have to have a central bank in place in terms of defining you know, expenditures, you know, investments, and those kind of things that are critical you know, to the continent. If you do a piecemeal of every country's independently planning, then, of course, uh, it, it, it makes it that much more impossible 
in terms of resolving the problems, the very general problems that pervade you know, the entire African continent. So we have to have some unified approach, some centralized approach in terms of dealing with the issues that Africa confronted with. And without the political organization, it's simply not possible in terms of addressing all the issues that have to be addressed. But again, I'm glad that at least the African Union is at least beginning to critique, you know, uh, Western neocolonialism and begin to express, you know, its dismay or its contempt, you know, for you know this 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 something central strategy that persists to this day. Uh, so clearly, brother, after that's your question, I think it's going to take you know political organization, anything short of political organization. Uh, you know, the bottom line is that we're not going Africa is not going to get to where it needs to be. You need that political or central um, political organization. First, you need the Central Bank of Africa. Uh, but more importantly, you definitely need um, uh, um, organizations, you know, uh, or institutions, uh, you know, centered around the theme of pan-Africanism who function, you know, as a, senior, senior, a, a single entity who are able to make deals, uh, to make trade, to make investments uh, with, that will be good for Africa. But they only can do that in terms of presenting a united front. As long as Africa is fragmented, it doesn't have that kind of power. So it's important that Africa band together, African states band together, uh, work together, create that, uh, create that united front under Pan-Africanism, and then with that kind of political organization, there's no power on the earth that can, that can manipulate or, or undermine Africa's development. But it's going to need that political organization in order to achieve its ends, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, what would it take for Africa to be free? Pan-Africanism, uh, to put it as simply as possible. And that is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. In the, uh, in the uh, news clip you played, played earlier, uh, the... Uh, the anchor woman pointed out that Africa is divided into 54 uh, uh, political entities right now. And uh, what uh, what countries outside of Africa are doing is they're exploiting that level of division to serve their own interests. And so Pan-Africanism is, de- is definitely the only, su- the only way that Africa will be free. And, uh, and uh, it has to be under scientific socialism because capitalism got Africa in the position that it is now in the first place. So it can't be a solution. So the only, uh, the only alternative is scienti- scientific socialism. And it's going to take political unification because the only way uh, a country can have a unified uh, armed defense and a, un- uh, and a unified foreign policy is for those 54 entities to unite. And that way they can speak with one voice instead of 54 different voices. And I think that's going to be critical in order for Africa to be free, that it has to be united. And all African revolutionaries throughout the world must work for Africa's political unification. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, what would it take for Africa to be free? 
Well, they tell me that pan-Africanism, scientific socialism for the United States of Africa will set the, the captives free uh, when they have political consciousness of that level where they have a political conscience, political economy that is liberating and uh, in line with progress. Uh, I, that's the bottom line. Uh, now, short of that, I, I mean, there's all kind of reforms and different things people can do to feel better about themselves and stuff, but until they get organized and deal with the task at hand, that's that's the situation Africa is faced with. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. So that I'm from your perspective, what would it take for Africa to be free? Is that Eleanor? Yeah, that's different. Is Eleanor? Can you hear us? We have some problems with the mic. Can you hear us, Eleanor? So we'll try to come back with her. At this point in time, we have some problems with her line. What we'll do, we're going to tell you this discussion. You know, Brother Anthony, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when I listened to you know, to, um, you know, to uh, clipping was that um, we talk about the importance of institutions. From what you have heard from these two clippings, so why is it that African Liberation Day is important as a vital institution to not only maintain but to even expand more today? What does it mean to have a day called African Liberation Day institution as it relates towards the future development of Africa? Brother Anthony? Hey, well, uh, if you recall, uh, Kwame Nkrumah called for, uh, a, 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 you know, uh, African Freedom Day, which, which African Liberation Day was originally called in order to mark the onward progress towards uh, achieving Pan-Africanism, or at a minimum, uh, Africa's uh, uh, freedom. And um, and uh, the onward progress in terms of achieving that, keep in mind that Africa Liberation Day was founded at a time when Africa was most of Africa was under direct colonialism by the European powers. And uh, once uh, the momentum for genuine independence gained steam, uh, the imperialist forces uh, shifted strategy and resorted to neocolonialism. And uh, that's been a problem in Africa at least since the 60s. And uh, the only way to overcome it is through the achievement of Pan-Africanism. And that is, and African Liberation Day is an important institution for marking the onward progress or setbacks in terms of achieving Pan-Africanism. And uh, and that becomes very important 
uh, to mark that. And uh, one and uh, it was originally uh, commemorated on April fifteenth at the conclusion of the first conference of independent African states. It was later changed to African Liberation Day and moved to May 25th because that was the conclusion of the first meeting of the Organization of African Unity. And while the African Unity marked a step forward, it was a compromise uh, between those forces that wanted to maintain uh, the the carve up done by the uh, by the European imperialists at the Berlin Conference, and those that were uh, that were for genuine Pan Africanism, and that is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. So uh, that still remains a, a, a goal of all Pan Africanists. And we urge uh, all African revolutionary and progressive organizations to work towards that goal also. Because once Africa is free, then Africans throughout the world will also be free. And that is the only way they'll be free, through the achievement of Pan-Africanism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki. You mentioned earlier about the importance of having a centralized bank on a continental scale. To do that, we also talking about having currency, a one unified currency. Why is significant to have one unified currency as it relates to Africa development and its ability to compete with the rest of the world on an equal footing? Well. I, I, I think that, you know, let, let me just clarify something, because I think it's important when we talk about the role of a central bank in Africa, understand that the role to Pan-Africanism is a process, as we must debate, uh, a much, much debate, in terms of, you know, implement, implementing you know, Pan-Africanism. So it's not going to be a cut-and-dry kind of situation where simply you easy to achieve. It's going to be a process. A bank is something relatively easy in terms of coming to some inclusion around uh, people understand that you've got to have banks in terms of uh, investments, uh, in terms of uh, in, 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 in terms of you know you know financial markets. You got to have a bank. You got to have some institution in terms of facilitating the flow of, of currency you know throughout the society. So banks are central. So if you have a central bank in Africa, which can terms uh, uh, unilaterally determine you know the, in one single currency. They value that currency. It do much in terms of facilitating trade, because one of the things when you talk about in terms of currency, which is why it's so important, is that with, with your own currency, you can you can impact your your interest rate, your interest, the interest that you charge on your currency. As the situation currently exists, uh, Africa is a disadvantage because lo- largely African currency has no real value. So when we talk about interest uh, uh, in terms of accumulating, you know, in terms of African currency, there is none. In fact, in order for African states to actually uh, uh, to invest, uh, they have to use Western currencies for investments, which means that in using other currencies that you have to pay those currencies or those states interest on their currency, which means it leaves Africa poor. But if Africa had its own currency and it set its own interest rate, uh, you know, it has, a, it has it's much, much, much more control in terms of factors like interest. 
uh, in terms of um, the, the velocity in which the money turns over, uh, in terms of, you know, as money turns over, uh, it actually uh, it increases. The, the, the level of, of money in circulation actually increases in terms of, you know, as money flows through the system. So for that reason, you want your money to flow through the system uh, because of the in, in increase in value. And increase in value, value there's more money out there, there's more that can be achieved in terms of investments, in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure, and all those kind of things that are important to society. So I think that the single currency for Africa is, is absolutely key in, term, in terms of achieving, you know, in terms of achieving uh, independence of Africa, in terms of liberating Africa. Uh, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, um, one of the things that when we talk about, talk about banks, uh, also I think, you know, one of the things is that, you know, when, when Gaddafi talked about the importance in terms of, in terms of an African central bank, uh, he was willing to put up, put up the capital in terms of getting the bank started. It is a reason why it was important that Gaddafi be killed by the West, because in fact, when he talked about putting up Libya's currency for the sole express purpose of creating the United Central Bank in Africa, the West understood that by creating that central bank in Africa, it undermined U.S. ability in terms of impacting Africa's economies, and so therefore Gaddafi had to be killed. And since then, there had been no other African leader to come forward and say, "Listen." We can use this currency in terms of building this African Central Bank because they understand that if they were to propose such an idea, then the, the, the inevitable outcome is death. And so, certainly, in terms of being revolutionary, you got to understand that the inevitability of death is very, very real. But if you're truly committed to the aspirations of the people, if you're truly committed to the aspirations of the continent, then you got to accept death as an inevitability. And Gaddafi was able was willing to accept the inevitability of death in order to achieve that that you know that uh, central bank in Africa. Uh, but to answer your question about Africa, yes, I think it's a, a central currency uh, for Africa is key because without central currency, Africa has no control over interest, has no control over investments, it has no control over in terms of the, the flow of currency in and out of society. It has no control. And once you give all that control in terms of the function of currency to Western states. Then certainly they use the functional currency for the sole purpose of impoverishing Africa, and that's precisely how it acts. And so when you talk about, for instance, something like something as simplistic as, as credit, keep in mind when when Western states provide Africa credit, it doesn't mean that they physically put money in Africa's hands. That credit re- resides on a computer somewhere, and they tell Africa what to do with that credit. For instance, they would say to Africa, "You will build roads." You build these roads because these roads are good for us in terms of getting our resources, getting your resources, African resources, from the place that they're 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 they're, they're, they're extracted onto the train, onto the port to be to be sent to the west. And so they tell Africans specifically in terms of how those credits are to be used. Africa cannot use those credits for the for the for the overall advance of the society because the because the 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 the, the, the use of those credits are determined by the west. And the West always uses credits to the to, to to the advantage. So as a consequence, Africa become poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer. Make no mistake about it. There's a tremendous amount of classism that exists in terms of that whole process. There are African leaders who acquiesce uh, to you know to Western exploitation because they get paid, they make lots of money in terms of playing you know playing by rules of the game. Uh, so clearly, Africa has to have revolutionary leaders who understand that you know business as usual is no longer the the, the, the mantra. That we have to, you know, understand that in order for Africa to be free, then we have to make those sacrifices, personal and otherwise, that's going to lead to Africa's liberation. So central banks, central currency are are, are important in terms of Africa's uh, liberation. 
Thank you, Brother Hockey. Thank you. Let's see. We got Sister Eleanor back. Sister Eleanor, when you look at this particular um, presentation by Professor Lumumba, why Africa is attracted to China, what were some of the contradictions they spoke to as it relates to why Africa is not united as one? Just give me your general take. What you, what you, what you got from that presentation? Is that Africa. Yes. Hello? Can you hear yes, me? Yes, we hear you. Yes, we can. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, in terms of African unity and and uh, economic unity, uh, Moa Kadaki was trying to foster it by encouraging African nations to not uh, take loans from the International Monetary Fund and and groups like that. It was willing, Libya with its wealth was willing to help finance uh, actions in Africa. Now, the, the, the positive thing about what's going on with China is the building of an infrastructure and of course, the negative thing is that the minerals, the resources of Africa, are being uh, uh, exploited for the use in China. So we 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 see uh, there is uh, a contradiction in 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 the development. Uh, it. Uh, on the surface, it looks as if it's serving the interests of the nation state, but not really. It is serving the interests of China to uh, expand its uh, uh, outreach with ports as it is doing through Asia and throughout the Pacific in particular. And uh, also to uh, dump uh, their goods on on the African market, so they are encouraging Chinese citizens to move to Africa to establish businesses. The real thing, as uh, Brother Haki and Anthony and and Moses said, is that it's going to take. Uh, uh, Pan-Africanism and the African Union is going to have to work together collectively and not undercut each other in the sales of commodities, whether it's oil or other resources. Thank you. Brother Moses, one of the points the Professor Lumumba made, which I thought was really interesting, was around the question of African leadership. He made a statement where he said that if you're in a position, matter of fact, if you are one of those who perceive as being the most advanced, the most guilty, got the most to give, then you must become a servant. You must be. You must serve the people, and not to be served. What do you meant by that statement from your perspective, Brother Moses? You should serve the people and not to be served. Your response? 
Brother Moses? Well, like I said, I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that mouth faith tongue is his messenger for government. And mouth faith tongue stress serves the people and keep politics in command. And so as long as we're on earth and we're dealing with this world of flesh and bones, we have to serve the people and look out for the interests of the masses of the people that we're going to be true followers of Christ and Mao and justice and truth. So that's just the way I see it. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Haki, you talk about Africans in these positions where they think it's these positions are permanent for them. They don't want to give it up. You know, they get in these positions. They don't serve in the interest of the people, but they use these positions to be served. Expand your perspective on this whole question that they need to be a servant to the people and not to be served. Brother Haki. Yeah, well, if Africans would be free, uh, the, 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 the psychological disposition of many African leaders has to change. It has to embrace the, what uh, Mary Robinson of, 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 uh, of Ireland stated was, you know, uh, uh, do a job, not keep a job. I think it's important that African leadership understand, you know, that uh, you know that uh, in, in positions of of of, of great um, great power comes great responsibility. And I think to some extent the question in terms of you know uh, traditional values has to be questioned. There's no doubt in tradition a lot of traditional African belief systems. The notion that in terms of you know power uh, is central is, is 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 essential in terms of one's existence. And while on a colloquial level, that's very, very true, the bottom line in the, in, the, in the political arena, when you talk about in terms of execution of power, if it doesn't serve a larger end, then, you know, uh, the question in terms of power itself uh, becomes, in terms of meaning, becomes questionable. So it's important that African leaders begin to understand, you know, that if you're going to change Africa, it starts with leadership. And, uh, of course, that's, that's much easier said than done. Of course, one of the things in terms of in terms of Western strategy is they 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 are they are optimistic that they're going to always find some African leader which can be corrupted. Henceforth, explains why you have assassination of very radical or progressive leadership in Africa, because the fear is that if these revolutionary progressive leadership come to power in Africa, who understand fundamentally the responsibility to the masses of people, who understand that they'll they'll do a job and not keep a job then it means that it undermines Western uh, colonialism's uh, interest. And so, therefore, you know, when you stop and think about someone like Julius Nereri out of Tanzania in terms of, you know, his position in terms of warning African leaders in terms of importance in terms of, you know, getting there, doing the job, setting the precedent, and then moving on as opposed to holding on to power because in the long run it becomes counterproductive. And he, what he had to say was so correct. When we see throughout Africa where African leaders refuse to give up power, uh, to the detriment, you know, of, of their of their countries, uh, it's a sad commentary. But nonetheless, you know, until that mentality change, you know, that that everything is mine. Until that that that, that very uh, juvenile mentality changes, uh, you have African leaders who continue to to insist, you know, that it's all about them. It's all about the accumulation of power, and what happens to the state is irrelevant. But I, I'm optimistic, though, brother Africa, that given the 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 kind of uh, the kind of uh, Discussion, the kind of discourse has been taking place throughout the continent in terms of various leaders, various leaders on the African continent, 
uh, who are confident, you know, that that paradigm is going to change and that you're going to have African leadership, you know, who are more vested and, you know, what's in the interest of the people, what's in the interest of the country, and understanding that in terms of achieving those things, it means that you have to share power. So I'm optimistic that things will change in Africa, but nonetheless, I think this, pro- this discussion around traditional values and traditional mindset has to be questioned. And Brother Africa, I close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, you know, he made a real interesting um, analysis. I think African people need to keep in mind as we go down this road of trying to unify Africa and become self-sufficient and independent. He stated that when Africa is divided, that's good for Europe and, Europe and America. Let me repeat that statement. When Africa is divided, that is good for Europe and for America. What is the implication of that statement, Brother Anthony? Well, the implication of that statement uh, is that Africa, as is presently constituted, is in a very vulnerable position. And the the war in Libya is an example of that. When Libya was attacked by the imperialist forces, uh, to my knowledge, not one African country came to Libya's defense. Not one. And keep in mind, which shows the 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 even even the lack of uh, military viability, let alone political viability, of uh, uh, of uh, of uh, you know of an uh, of a nation divided into fifty four states, and uh, and uh, to bring about the unification of Africa. Uh, you know, in order to accomplish things like, uh, you know, a centralized bank, a common foreign policy, and uh, even a, a, a common military policy, it's going to take a sacrifice. And that's why, it's, uh, you know, that's where the difficulty in the process lies. You got to have leadership in place that are, that are willing to sacrifice in order to bring about the political unification necessary. And uh, even though on the surface Africa's problems seem primarily economic, at the end of the day they're ultimately political, and uh, that's also ch- uh, shown by the fact that the enemies of Africa's liberation are taking advantage of Africa's divided state in order to sow divisions in their own interests. And the only way to pre- prevent that sort of thing is to have a unified foreign policy. And uh, and also, Africa needs a common military defense. Because as Africa is constituted, not one country could stand up to the powers of imperialism if imperialist forces decided to attack Africa, any one of the 54 countries in Africa. 
And I think that's one of the bigger lessons uh, drawn from the war in Libya, that unless Africa is united, it cannot uh, survive the offensive mounted by its enemies. Sister Eleanor, one of the obstacles of uniting Africa to be free is the obstacle of conflicts. We talk about the current state of Africa is in a state of conflicts. We have conflicts all over the country, all over the continent, from country to country. Speak to the need of need of trying to resolve these conflicts. Why it's important to con- resolve these conflicts? If we want to unite Africa, just out of North. Yes, thank you. Just look at the Sudan in the last few days. First, we see that the West influenced the Sudan, which was one of the largest countries in Africa. At one point, it may have been the largest. It may be the third now. But they, this, uh, the, the the West encouraged the Sudan to divide itself into two countries, which it did. And it was led by a guy named Bashir until 2019. Uh, there appeared to be these democratic demonstrations led by women, and he was ousted. But now in the Sudan, I'll call it the northern Sudan, there has been fighting going on the last five days. Uh, apparently, there are UN forces there, there are guerrilla forces, and the government forces fighting each other in the capital city of Khartoum. Then you go to Morocco, and you have the the uh, uh, southern Sahara, the the bordering nation, which is a subject of the Moroccan. Uh, government and that there's a conflict there. Then you look at the conflict in Uganda. Then we look at the conflict in Ethiopia. Ethiopia, which had been one country through the ages, suddenly became two, Eritrea and Ethiopia. Then after that, 20 years or so down the road, Ethiopia is fighting one tribe against another. The Tigray were being assaulted. The Oromo united one of the largest tribes. They live not only in Ethiopia, but also in Kenya, united with the Tigray. But the propaganda from the West didn't bring that to the public's attention. So you see all these military conflicts uh, throughout Africa, you see that uh, in the Congo, and uh, this this uh, again is cost the lives of of the people, the children, the women, the men, and the young people who fight these wars. So rather than studying and advancing their skills and organizing uh, or being at a university or a high school somewhere. They're instead learning military tactics and how to kill each other. 
Now, uh, these conflicts um, prevent people from organizing. It prevents people from having a world view. It narrows the scope of those of individuals. Now we see that uh, several countries were trying to form their own uh, financial base. I think it uh, the acronym is BRIC, or uh, I believe I may be wrong. But your question was about the military conflicts that are facing uh, Sudan. Uh, Uganda, the Congo, uh, Libya, um, even right now in Somalia, and and Morocco. This this is outrageous, and it it it, uh, isolates the people from the world, and it costs lives, and uh, it and it cause the minds, the educated, the intellectuals are dying and being killed. And these dictatorships, this neo-colonialism continues to persist in Africa. Uh, Everyone had great hopes for the prime minister of Ethiopia. He uh, got the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, now you would wonder, was that uh, uh, something that should have been done? We really do not know because we are not getting the facts here in the United States. But anywhere there's war, uh, people are unable to educate themselves. They're unable to feed themselves. They're unable to operate hospitals. They're, they are limited by their own uh, demise. So uh, that's all I can say on that. And uh, that's the impact of uh, neo-colonial conflict. As other analysts said, where the leaders are enriching themselves. And it's not only empowering themselves, but enriching themselves. Look at the Cameroon, one person leading the country for 35 years. Uh, The Francophones are divided by the Anglophones. And all of these artificial borders are what people are fighting over. These are the colonial borders. Cameroon had an opportunity to reunite with his native uh, communities in what is modern-day Nigeria, but rejected the notion. So you have colonialism, you have war, you have division, you have poverty, suffering, and death, and no one can win in that scenario. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, to Brother Moses. Uh, He made a statement that it's all right to dream, to have dreams. I have a dream, too. Well, he said, at some point in time, you got to wake up. What was the point that he was making when he made a statement, Brother Moses? You have to have a sober sober mind as an assessment of of what needs to be done. Uh, um, You know, you have to have a 
uh, dialectic and historical materialist outlook and uh, recognize the struggle for what it, what it is and how it is and, and be able to engage in it, in it as it is. And so, um, you know, there's the correct handling of contradictions among the people and there's, there's a way to do everything. And uh, uh, we must study the situation and uh, investigate the situation and and um, uh, apply the appropriate action. Uh, uh, I I don't want to go in any further. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Haki, I thought a real practical um, analysis when he spoke to the contradiction, and I'd like for you to elaborate on it from your perspective, of the whole issue of all these variations of African currency, but that currency is no use in each other country. But yet, if you come in with a U.S. dollar or a euro or a yen, that currency will be effective through all of the countries. Speak to that dilemma, Brother Haki. <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a it's a real irony. Uh, you would think that you know right off the top, you know African leaders would say, "Wait a minute, hold on a second here. You're taking my resources, and you're telling me my currency has no value. That only your currency have value, but yet you're using taking my resources." It would seem to me that that alone would uh, certainly spark you know some kind of indignation. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're thinking that would spark some indignation in the minds of you know of, of, of most African leaders, but again, of course, we understand the role of classism, and we understand we understand that uh, in addition to the classism, we have the colonial mentality. <clears throat> so we got people who think that in fact having access to those Western currencies gives them power and gives them status, and so they're content in terms of you know accepting those those currencies, even though those currencies are wrecking their economy. It is un- it is unfortunate, Brother Africa. Uh, you know, when, when when you stop and think about it, in terms of you know, you know, post Bretton Woods, you know, when they created this this whole this whole this whole uh, situation where um, you know uh, defining interest rates, defining value of currencies, and in that process totally eliminated Africa in terms of any discussion in terms of putting a placing the value to African currencies. Now here's the, here's the irony: African currencies does have some value. But it doesn't have value relative Western currencies, and it promises because it has relative little value. There's no real value in terms of trade between African states. So African states themselves depend on Western currencies in terms of conducting trade, because the question of value is much more uh, defined in terms of using Western currency as opposed to using African currency. So that fundamentally has to change, by Africa. That, that that has to change. You know, as as long as you play by by rules of the game and you you pop up Western currencies. You do sort of disservice, a disadvantage to your own economy, because in fact, when you start talking about assessing the value of your commodities, you don't have any power at all in terms of assessing the value of your commodity because your currency has no value. So the value of those commodities gets assessed in Western in, in Western currencies, and so when Western currencies assess the value of those commodities, they assess them at a very low level because the rationale is that well, given my dollar compared to your currency, you know. Uh, this, this few dollars is enough to pay you for these currencies, even though you take, I mean, for those commodities. Even though you take those same commodities and come back, uh, process those commodities, 
and, and, and sell them for, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in some cases, and make huge profits, and then my, then the African states become poorer and poorer as a result of the, of that of that of that. Uh, so clearly, uh, something has to change in terms of you know you know the, the the currency in terms of you know the value of African currencies, and that's not going to change by the Africa as long as the current paradigm exists. And that's the sad reality. Uh, African states have to totally number one they have to reject this notion in terms of the supremacy of Western currencies, and secondly. It has to innovate. It must. It must have its own currency in terms of being able to 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 compete economically around the world. Africa has all the resources. If you're going to talk about a, a dominating or predominating currency, then certainly the, the, the country or the state that has that those those resources emanate from should have more value. That value should be reflected in the strength of its currency. But the mere fact that because Africa is so disjointed, so so fragmented, so disempowered, uh, Western state can simply impose, you know, um, uh, uh, um, um, ideas uh, which are counterproductive, which are in opposition to Africa's advancement. And as long as African states continue to prop up those Western currencies, the bottom line is that the, the disempowerment will ensure the underdevelopment of Africa will continue. So Africa's African leaders had, you know, at, at, you know, it seems to me like overnight, it seems to me African leaders should be on the phone and say, "Listen, you know what? This 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 current uh, arrangement, this current economic arrangement in terms of accounting for currencies value, is fundamentally at odds in terms of you know you know how economics work. We have to change that. We can no longer play by this Western paradigm which says that you know only Western currencies has value, African currency has no value." We can no longer do that. That has to fundamentally change. Even if that means that all resources out of Africa stops, you know, but we're going to get it straight. No longer we're going to play business as usual. But but like, uh, but like Anthony says, though, if it's any evidence that African leaders actually, uh, you know, a desire in terms of, you know, putting a halt to this practice, inevitably, inevitably and the inevitability is that Western states military will intervene in terms of taking those resources. So this is what it importance in terms of having Africa be in a position to defend itself, and they can only do that collectively. Uh, but it has to be first and foremost the will in terms of understanding that in order to 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 get what is rightfully yours, sometimes you have to fight for it. This is so. This is this is a world dominated by a Western edict which says that you know, might makes right. There is no there is no morality. There is there is no right and wrong. It's only expediency. They take what they want. So African nations have to understand all they do is right. Sometimes you have to fight. That's just the cold hard reality of it all. But I think fundamentally you're absolutely correct. Unless they unless they, unless that situation is changed, unless African African current African uh currency uh uh tells, can compete with Western currency, the bottom line, Africa will begin to be subjugated and economically uh uh, uh devastated. So clearly that's not gonna change you know, without some real struggle in terms of bringing into existence, you know, the legitimate uh, value of African currencies based upon its resources. And I'll close with that. All right, to Brother Anthony, can we get some discussion on not to repeat errors of the past? That is to say, Brother Anthony, when you listen to a lot of these discussions, there seem to be a leaning towards putting economic development or economic activities over political unity. 
Nkrumah says, seek the political kingdom first. We must make our politics control our economics and not our economics control our politics. Can you speak to the essence of the importance of understanding fight for the political unity, the importance of developing a common way of thinking ideology that would be able to create emerged activities where we can act as one? Brother Anthony. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, Nkrumah is, cor- uh, uh, is correct on, uh, uh, on that position that he articulated. That, uh, that 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 we must seek political unification uh, because if we put economic unification first, it uh, it doesn't create the most the strongest situation for our interests. Uh, the solution lies in political unification under a scientific socialist government. Capitalism got us in the position we're in in the first place, so that can't be part of the solution. Uh, and also, political unification is only viable under scientific socialism, and uh, and that is the only way we can uh, manage our resources uh, for the collective interests, and also dictate the value of our currency uh, is is by speaking with one voice instead of 54 or how many, uh, you know, independent states there are in Africa right now. But, uh, but, but we, but it it, it is going to be a difficult process because, uh, you know, it entails sacrifice and entails uh, leadership being willing to put their egos aside, but uh, but political unification is the ultimate solution uh, to the continued exploitation of Africa. That is why we must strive to achieve it, even though uh, even though the enemies of African liberation and uh, you know, uh, genuine freedom would say that it's not possible or that it's difficult. But uh, Africa, uh, looking at Africa history as a whole, Africans have had uh, a history of o- overcoming past difficulties, and uh, we can uh, o- overcome this one. But it is necessary in order for Africa to be able to stand, to stand up to imperialism. And as we saw with Libya and with any other country, uh, divided, we cannot stand up and defeat our enemies. So political real, real unification becomes very critical. Speaking of that point, I can go back to Haki for a second. Uh, come back to you for a second, Brother Haki. I think he also made a real interesting point for the call for and the common sense of Pan-Africanism as a necessity, where he equated 
that these little independent so-called nations that we call African nations are not big enough and strong enough to trade and engage in economic activities with countries out of Europe or the U.S. or China. So, therefore, it'd be, the real reality is, you know, it'd be beneficial for these little microstates that were created out of the Berlin Conference to unite as one and we'd be in a better position and a stronger position to truly talk about uh, participate in this world economy. Because to open up your market, as you call this free market, they tell African people they, to open up their market. They do that because they know at this point in time they're so small and they're in a position of weakness. Your response to that analysis, Brother Haki? Yeah, but but unfortunately, Brother Africa, when they when they when they when they put out the general call for Africans to open up the market, they're not just talking about the small states; they're talking about the large states as well. And so, uh, uh, unfortunately, you're, you're you're right. Smaller states have a much more difficult time in terms of resisting, you know, in terms of opening up their markets. I mean, they can undermine the economy with ease relative larger states, but unless they do to some degree manage to undermine, you know, both small and large states in terms of you know, economic activity. But I think that in terms of the unity and to bring it to make it, you know, the unity is impossible is possible, uh makes it makes it possible, you know, for you know, you know, uh to not only balance the scales, but effectively create an economic policy which is more in line with you know Africa's contributions in terms of its resources to the world, so I think that to 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 the extent you know that you know if, if Africa um, uh, um, if Africa uh, currency is to improve, uh, I think certainly when we talk about in terms of the problems that are economic problems that are that are so familiar to Africa, those things will simply be limited simply by having virtue of a, a strong currency to be able to compete with Western currencies. Uh, so I think that the key, you're absolutely right, I think the key is unity. With the unity, unity makes all things possible. It's, it's a very, very simple concept. Uh, the problem is that how do we overcome, uh, how do we overcome classism? How do we overcome the colonial mindset? Uh, how do we overcome these obstacles uh, that inform our judgments? Uh, so that's a more difficult question in terms of how do we do that. I talked to a young fellow uh, not, uh, the other day uh, around the question in terms of um, in terms of the, the the complicity of you know very wealthy Africans in Africa, you know who are selling out their people you know for material gain, uh, even though their people and their, their nations continue to suffer. And while the young brother position was that well we're ta- well they are business people, so what they're doing is natural. So he makes a distinction between the politics of the society. And the actions of the of, of the uh, of the uh, of the business people, and what I try to get him understanding is that don't you see it's all part of this, the same dynamic. If in fact you know if we could talk about in terms of the true empowerment of Africa, then it's going to take all players working in concert to confront you know Western powers in terms of putting an end to the systematic injustice. And I don't think he got it. So I raised the question in terms of Dos Santos' daughter. In terms of the, the, the kind of, uh, of, of collusion she engaged in, in terms of you know of the oil, the sale of oil, illegal sale of oil, you know to the West until profit, the new personal profit, make profit. Uh, so he, I think he understood in, in terms of the this, the real the real irony 
in terms of this woman using, you know, you know, state resources for personal gain and then flying over to Europe, living in, in, in castles and, and, and large estates, you know, living a good life while the people back in Angola continue to suffer and catch hardship. So clearly, Brother Africa, unity is the key, and it's very simple. It's very simple. It's a very simple uh, equation. We, you know, you know, to just bring it home to the United States, we keep saying to our people, listen, we have to have unity in terms of moving forward. It's a very difficult concept for a lot of people to get behind. Uh, there are all kinds of factors that necessitate against come, coming to the realization that you're being used in order to bring about to bring about to bring about progress. So we have the religious divisions that exist. Now. We have the class divisions that exist. We have the cultural divisions that exist. Uh, we have the religious divisions that exist in our community. So in terms of forming divisions, is a very difficult thing. We can say it, but actually coming to bringing it to fruition, it becomes a different question. It's much more difficult to get our people to understand the necessity for division, the necessity for unity, if they don't fundamentally understand what the issues are at hand. So to the extent that people are willing to embrace themselves in terms of understanding and truly appreciating what's going on in society, it's going to be determined, first and foremost, by their disposition. In other words, if they see that it's something fundamentally askew, something fundamentally wrong with the society, then they want to learn. But if they don't see that they're wrong with the society, they think you are the problem because you have the audacity to critique the society. So the question of unity becomes very, very difficult to achieve. And, and likewise, so when we talk about Africa, in terms of in terms of unity, the same obstacles present themselves on the continent. So we're getting our people on. We get, we 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 ask our brothers and sisters on the continent. Unity is the key. Well, that's all well and good, but then you talk to brothers and sisters who, who talk about the question in terms of, in terms of you know uh, divisions imposed by tribalism, culture, tradition, language, and you talk about those kind of divisions. Those divisions are much more difficult to get around. Uh, even though theoretically, you know, it sounds like it should be easy for people to say, okay, all right, we're getting screwed and we're going to put an end to it because we're going to do X, Y, and Z in terms of making sure this comes to an end. Much easier to say than to actually achieve. So the struggle in terms of unity is key, but achieving it always a, is a theoretical question. And, of course, you know, uh, it would be nice if people would understand intru- in, intrinsically the in, in significance in terms of unity, but the bottom line is that that just doesn't happen. So the struggle continues. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Suzanne Lenore, one interesting point he said Africans need to learn to overcome and deal with is that we need to lack what we produce. In other words, if I'm in Ghana and I make cocoa and I make chocolate, I must appreciate the chocolate as an African that we make and produce versus supporting the chocolate that come out of Switzerland. Your response to that particular issue? Sister Eleanor, why is that important? Well, um, I, I'm sorry I didn't hear your your question, and it was why it's important. The question is why it's important to understand the value of appreciating products that are produced in Africa, being an African, versus going outside of your economy and supporting those things that are produced outside. He gave the example well, of the cocoa yeah. industry. Ghana has a cocoa industry that makes chocolate, but that chocolate is not appreciated as much by the Ghanaians and the Africans than the chocolate that comes from the outside for Switzerland. And that becomes the problem. Well, the cocoa is exported to the European countries. 
where they process the raw material, the raw cocoa, to make fine chocolates and and these uh, uh, culinary treats. But the main thing about uh, controlling the resources and having a common currency and having a uh, African Union is the control pricing of raw materials in addition to um, have some control uh, or begin to take control of the manufacturing and production of things like uh, 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 cocoa or wind turbines. Um, Another thing that's used very often in Africa uh, solar uh, solar equipment. So that manufacturing needs to begin to be done in Africa rather than being strapped with purchasing uh, these, these uh, products from other countries abroad. Uh, once it's manufactured and produced in Africa, that will cut costs, and uh, it will also uh, uh, build the economy, the gross uh, national product of these individual countries like Ghana will increase. And we saw the impact that Israel had on Senegal. When Senegal did not agree with Israel's actions, against the Palestinians, the water product project they were doing, um, helping the Senegalese with stopped immediately. So anywhere you can foster independence, anywhere you can develop your own agricultural and uh, uh, manufacturing resources, will assist the economy. And the cocoa is an excellent example. Um, Also, uh, you know, as we see now with the oil, uh, the pipeline that runs from North Africa into Spain and how it's fallen in disrepair and uh, ships very little fuel uh, abroad. Um, so uh, that's about it, is uh, independence, economic independence, and uh, self-reliance is always going to make a stronger community and a wealthier community. Thank you, Sister Noah. And Brother Moses, we talk about Africa to be free. We must ask the question, what does it take, Brother Moses, to create a communication system where we can communicate among ourselves from country to country and don't have to go outside of Africa to Europe and come back to Africa to speak to my neighbor? Your response for the importance of a collective, unified communication system where African control and we can speak among ourselves, Brother Moses. Certainly, you want an independent independence. You want self determination. You want to be able to do things for yourself, by yourself, 
as much as possible. And so you don't want to be dependent on foreign powers or, powers or any outside forces if, if necessary. Uh-huh. Um, as Kim Il-sung in um, Korea used to say, uh, you got the juche, self-reliance. And so, um, you know, definitely, you know, <coughs> that's the strategy of imperialism is to keep you dependent upon them and to so well they can exploit you. And so, you know, you want, you definitely want independence, independence of politics and a political economy that's based upon the needs of the people in your country. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, um, Brother Africa, this is Africa on the Move. We're discussing the theme tonight, Africa to be free. We're encouraging those who may have not heard the presentation by Professor P.L.O. Lamuma. Uh, you can go to YouTube, title Why Africa. The article is Why Africa is um, Attractive to China. And there was another article um, dealing with um, the scramble for Africa. You can check out those particular um clippings and listen to it and think for yourself in terms of how do we get Africa to move forward and to become free and independent. You must have a collective discussion and collective understanding and act collectively to make this materialize. So at this point in time, what we're going to do, we're going to take a station break. And what we would like to do when we come back, we will ask our political panelists and analysts to answer those fundamental questions, summarizing some of their thoughts on this discussion night, and that is how do we get Africa to work and to work for itself? That is the question. We'll discuss that when we come back. This is Africa on the Move.
mean, you know, the capitalism got the world on fire, and we're going to put it out. We welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We're discussing the theme tonight, Africa, to be free. And what we want to do is just remind everyone that this is Africa on the Moon Radio. It's under the banner of the African Awareness Association. You can dialogue with us every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. We encourage all listening audience supporters, if you'd like to have a transcript or have a link to this program, feel free to email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail.com. At the same time, if you'd like to support this radio station, we welcome all contributions by easily to us under the name of African Awareness Association 2 at gmail, or you can cash out it by using the dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, Small C, small R, small O, small B. A contribution will be made to us. Continuing our work and effort to help liberate and feed our people and create a better humanity, humanity for all mankind. So this is Brother Africa. We're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat. And we speak truth to the powerful and the powerless. So right now what we want to do is get our political panelists and analysts. They'll find a take on the subject today. Africa to be free. We come with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts on this particular program topic. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. It's been an interesting program. Uh, Africa must be free uh, of all neocolonialism, imperialism, and all, all the sexism, racism, and classism, um, which, which scientific socialism will will eradicate the political economy will be a revolutionary political economy. And uh, that's the future of Africa. Um, I look forward to uh, more and more struggle. They say a single spark could start a prairie fire. And so, you know, the situation is, is it could develop really, real rapidly depending upon the consciousness of the people, but the future is bright. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts on the subject tonight, Africa, to be free. Well, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to participate in this evening's show, and it's been a great show, and I'd like to say, in short, for Africa to be free. It has began to control its natural resources and to produce uh, products independently. Self-reliance is independence, and that's where Africa is going. And uh, as Brother Robert said, we have to shake the shackles of uh, Capitalism, imperialism, racism, sexism, and uh, classism, and protect Mother Earth. Be a part of the vanguard in terms of energy efficiency. And Africa has that opportunity right now. As you said, Brother Africa, take over the cocoa manufacturing no need to ship it to Europe, produce the product, the fine chocolate, and the other 
resources that cocoa was used for right there in Ghana. And as Africa begins to do this more and more, you see in South Africa, there's a whole new class of diamond cutters. They no longer depend on Asian and European diamond cutters. That industry is shifting. So as we see uh, self-reliance and self-independence, we will see a strong, growing Africa. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Next, we're going to Brother Hakeem's final thoughts for the night. Yeah, well, you know, I'm optimistic. You know, uh, you know, um, you know, change is, is happening relatively quickly. Um, I'm particularly inspired by the young people, in, you know, on the continent, you know, who are, you know, who are insisting more accountability, more responsibility, you know, among political leadership there in Africa, and that's of course a positive start. But in the context of the United States, I think one of the things that I think we have to fundamentally come to grips grips with is that, you know, when we talk about the decline of the, of the economy, we have to understand that in the context of that decline, uh, the level of hatred, uh, the, level, um, uh, the level of antipathy or, 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 or disgust is going to actually amplify. And we understand that, you know, just being human, though that anger uh, has, to be, has to be displaced. It has to, it has, someone has to catch it. Someone has to catch that anger. In the context is historically, when we look at American society and we understand historically the, the, the favorite scapegoat has always been African people in the society. And it's such that we can, given that reality, we can ill afford to turn our backs on the flow of history, you know, as it unfolds. A lot of things that we tend to take for granted in terms of uh, in, inequalities that go on in society. We talk about, for instance, like suffering like police brutality. We cannot see it in isolation. We have to understand it's part of a historical flow in terms of the subjugation of African people. If we don't fundamentally come to grasp in terms of these changes and what it means to African people's lives in the society, I'm very much concerned that, you know, that, you know, one day we're going to wake up and we, and it's just a soldier said, you will find ourselves re-enslaved. Of course, it doesn't, it, re-enslavement doesn't have to manifest itself in terms of, you know, shadow uh, slavery. I mean, it can manifest itself in terms of, you know, uh, uh, you know, hell, hell on earth. In other words, conditions are so miserable, you know, that death is preferable to living. So when you get to that point, then clearly, <clears throat> uh, then, then clearly, uh, you know, it becomes problematic. Uh, so I think that we have to fundamentally understand and to pay attention to what's going on. We have to build those institutions. We have to build those organizations, community uh, that deal with these issues and to clarify and to define you know, you know uh, the, the the extent of those issues and what we must do in terms of addressing those issues, because if we don't have a fundamental framework in terms of what it is that we're dealing with, uh, how we're going to counter the, the effects of you know of uh, of those who wish to uh, inflict harm on African community, then we really hurt ourselves. And so it's a very it's a very you know it's a very uh, it's a it's a very uh, difficult thing to grasp or to even to even you know to to entertain. But the bottom line is that, you know, given the flow of history in which it applies to all people, we can ill afford to pretend that somehow that we're, you know, that history doesn't apply to us, that somehow we exist outside the, the realm of history. That is simply not the case. Uh, those things that historically happened before in terms of in terms of atrocities committed against marginalized people, but also happened to African people in American society. 
and he superimposed and he superimposed the the, 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 the the racism in American society, then it creates an element for, you know, uh the potential of all very horrible things taking place in society. Uh this is not a this is not hyperbole, it's not intended to scare people, but to raise awareness in terms of just how precarious, just how impossible our situation is in society and that we must come to the realization that there's something fundamentally wrong in society and that, you know, as potential scapegoats, we have we, we don't have any other recourse but to understand that eventuality, begin to organize the bill and to prepare for whatever comes at us down the road. Because one thing is sure, you know, these evils, these historical evils that have always manifest themselves are not going to skip America simply because, you know, this is America. And having said that, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix. Uh, you know, by all means, you know, build, you know, build those institutions, build those organizations, you know, do that reading, critique, you know, what's going on in society. Take nothing for granted. Uh, our future depends on it. And I'll close with that. Brother Africa, have a good night. You do the same, Brother brother Haki. Next, go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts on today's theme? Africa to be free. Yes, yes. Um, in, or, in order for Africa to be free, uh, the, uh, the achievement of pan-Africanism is necessary, and uh, and 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 it must, and also the the struggle to achieve pan-Africanism must be guided by revolutionary ideology. And uh, let's see, we talked earlier today about African Liberation Day, Palestine Day briefly. And uh, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is organizing a series of activities from May 1st through May 25th, 2023, to commemorate African Liberation Day, Palestine Day. And our theme this year is Pan-Africanism, Waging Class Struggle in Africa and the Diaspora, Fighting for One Unified Socialist Africa. Please check out our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org on a periodic basis for more information on this theme and other aspects of uh, Pan-Africanism, such as our history, and learn more about the political program of the AAPRPGC. Thank you thank for you, having brother. me. Thank you, Brother Anthony. I'd like to thank the panelists. I'd like to thank the listeners and the promoters for allowing us the opportunity to come to your homes this evening where we can speak to you and the powerful and the powerless. Just the nature on this theme tonight, Africa to be free, I'd like to just make a couple of comments as it relates to this theme. Number one, we probably will recognize today the biggest obstacle for Africa to be free is the fight against neocolonialism. Along with that fight, we must kind of recognize and not repeat the errors of the past. As Brother Kuma stated that a unified, strong Africa cannot be won based upon the concept of a federalist structured government, nor can it be based upon a collective Africa 
functioning under a capitalist society or system. So when we talk about Pan-Africanism, we must not get sidetracked. And I understand when we talk about Pan-Africanism, we also talk about creating a scientific socialist um, system or government. So I don't know what your notes. We'd like to thank you for tuning in. We invite you to join us next week, same time, same place, same station. And remember, like always, let's strive to go forward, Apple, backward, travel. This has been Africa on the Moon, and for the next 15, 20 minutes, we will share with you some music that we hope to inspire you to come and join the liberation movement to free Africa and African people and make a better humanity for all people. This has been Brother Africa on Africa on the Moon. And remember, for Africa to be free, at least we must admit at this point in time, we are not yet free.
Graduated fresh on compliment Fresh out east and lala with no mountain Fresh out east and lala Four, four, lala, traffic down yeah. I was quick to pay that girl like, uh, now He go, hey, take it on me
black man, black man, go on and get a catch scan. I had chain wrapped too straight, too tight. We got a backhand, there ain't no Batman in this black land. I wish a rich nigga would come and save the day and pave the way. Ain't no amazing grace. I blaze the haze to remain the faith. Twenty years for my medicine, but they wanna throw me away for that. Then turn around and legalize it. I wish being black was truly accepted. Four hundred year elephant in the room. This ain't a new deal. They've been treating us like animals. We in a zoo still. So let me tell you how I feel. Guilty conscience trumps common sense every day, y'all. Ignore the issues, look at the victim like it's day fall. As if a wagon ain't harassing, waiting for jaywalkers in front of the building. Minding your business, news trying to pay your bills as if that wasn't to mention. Conjunction, junction, tell me what's your intention. Don't call him king, then treat him like some common folk. You a fighter like Ronda Rose, Rousey move around the rope. Drowsy with a cloud of smoke, how'd he do for Maui, bro? Traveling around the globe, you didn't know, but now you know. Early morning risings, my end of a long kick in. Birdman hand ropes, feeling my palms itching. I need a spiritual thought with top that's top notch. We watch black power docs and study our chakras. Oh, child, don't you ever come, come down. You acting like the sun ain't out. And we gon' cop a ticket and fly on out again, fly on out. Oh, child, don't you ever come, come down. You acting like the sun ain't out. Oh dear black man, tell me what happened You can't be low when your glow's everlasting Him when your ass been on Aspen like I have been Raising the trap when the gods talk math and moves with a Mac 10 Not that nigga back then, but look now nigga I'm established, cut camera action I cut lines with my sad card, my bitch is packing Then I'm cutting in line with a bad boy, they caught him flagging Then huddle round him with a stat chart, look You stay awake up feeling better than I I ever been. Check out my melanin, it's now the makeup for the mannequin That wants to be the same as the slave on the sedative You kill culture, I give knowledge, I spit stylish Crane kicks and Balenciagas and speaking science And bodegas that grow flavors was taught language Was taught to talk with the razor from having Spanish neighbors I fought the haters, court cases and lost paper Educated killers walking no ladies cross the street Turn back around, walk across and sell hard to a fee No turning back now, rent you and your kids got to eat, yeah Black man rooted deep with the blood of a king, yeah Black man roses arose from the cold concrete I eat, walk, talk, gritty Snitches get buck fifty One slice buck fifty Both get cut quickly Until they free Goldie Nobody can fuck Talk with me Oh, child Don't you ever Come, come down You acting like the sun ain't out So we gon' cop a ticket And fly on out And fly on out Oh, child Black became beautiful and made America great again. See the page of history or see the grave and hate again. I'm from New York, the last state to free the slaves, and now we getting to the point where they rebooting Martin Payne and them. Black man, switch it up just to be versatile. Why you always mean mugging? Man, it never hurts to smile. Make a record, break a record, get the record straight. I'm just trying to get it going. I'm trying to accelerate. Life alert. Welcome to my world, live and living color, stay low, word to J-Lo, out here with my fly girl, black man, 
black man They give you whack answers They robbing you with Batman They give you Black Panther When all our people dying They think that we need a movie But the box office don't break off The descendants of Huey Think about it I'm cooler than the Coca-Cola polar bear Hold up, roll up something potent Right before we go in there Maroon Customs support that shit that touches the streets Puffing a leaf on a corner that gave me nothing but grief Don't come around my way if your whole message is how much you got If you ain't got no fucking shot then don't touch the fucking rock Lucy still 50 cent, cool what kind of blunts you got You can lock a few niggas for hustling but nothing stops The judge just makes a hero and a young black boy lose their fucking pops And go on a robbing spree like fuck the ops Phone out of battery, black mirror, where the Windex King of the table of contents, human index I handle everything myself, the one-man quintet Let's take it where it hasn't been yet Dear black man Worth life One take
Mark, I've seen you in the street and at your political convention. Talking of your crusades, talking of your nation, and other things too terrible to mention. And you proclaim your Christianity, you proclaim your love of God, you talk of apple pie and mine. I've just got one question, can I want an answer? Tell me, who would Jesus bomb? Cause they're not Jews like him Maybe Jesus would bomb the Afghans On some kind of vengeful whim Maybe Jesus would drive an M1 tank And he would shoot Saddam Who would Jesus bomb? On the TV and on the battleships, I've seen you in the house on the hill. And I've heard you talking about making the world safer and about all the men you have to kill. And you speak so glibly about your civilization and how you have the moral higher ground. While halfway around the world, your explosives smash the buildings, you could only hear the sound. But maybe Jesus would sell landmines and turn on his electric chair. Maybe Jesus would show no compassion for his enemies in the lands way over there. Maybe Jesus would have flown the plane that killed the kids in Vietnam. Who would Jesus bomb? Hear you shout with confidence as you praise the Lord And you talk about this God you know so well You talk of Armageddon and your final victory When all the evil forces go to hell Well, you'd best hope you've chosen wisely On the right side of the Lord And when you die, your conscience, it is clear You'd best hope your atom bombs are better than the sword At the time when your reckoning is here in the Bethlehem or jets to raise the towns of Timorese. I don't think Jesus would lend money to dictators or drive those SUVs. I don't think Jesus would ever have dropped a single ounce of napalm. Who would Jesus bomb? Jesus bomb. Who would Jesus
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine. Palestine, needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs, our love. needs our love. People of all countries, of every race and creed, we need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Her freedom, Palestine, Palestine needs our love. chains, living in pain, today is the and nothing ever changes Hung by the news, can't tell the truth Filled with abuse and everywhere there's danger How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong Time 
will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there where our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino! You can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. Life is clear. Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey. Yeah, and made it through my journey. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. 
I want to 